The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That's repeated in uh, Psalm 46. Therefore, we will not fear. Along those lines, would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. This is toward the back of your Bibles. If you take the Pew Bible, if you don't have your own Bible, you can use the uh, Bible that's in the Pew. That's the navy blue book on page 1008. 1008. Certainly one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian life is endurance, continuing day after day after day after day till the day we die. And how many days we have are overwhelmed by doubt, by discouragement, by sin itself in many, many forms. And it is so encouraging that we are right with all of the people of God in the whole history of the church, as chapter 11 is a, a catalog of all the men and women of faith, chapter 12 says, surrounded by all of those witnesses, we follow Christ who excelled in faith, and we ourselves have set before us this race. So as we're going to see, uh, the race is just the way it is. It's just what we are about an endurance run to the day we die. And the whole church, in a sense, together is an endurance run until Christ comes again. And this is found in so many places in the epistles, and here's one of those most glorious places in which we are challenged to run with endurance. Therefore, having given this whole catalog is history of those who believed and done mighty deeds through their faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Let us pray. O Lord, bless us as we come to your precious word, that we may grow by it, that we may be transformed, that our faith may be built up, that our hope will enlarge, that our joy will grow steady and strong, or that we will give ourselves relentlessly with endurance and constancy to the race that has been laid out before us as we set our eyes upon our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us in His name we pray. Amen. 
when it says that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the root word is really the same as is later in the verse when it says the race that's set before us. But it says now they are set around us as the race is set before us. And it doesn't mean that they're up in the grandstands watching us. You're surrounded by witnesses now that are watching us. It's more that we are watching them. We are observing these witnesses. And so I would urge you on your own to read chapter 11 because it constantly lays before us the great acts of faith and realize that these men and women are just like you and me. They're not set before us as examples that we'll always just sit back and say, well, that was them and this is us. But they're set before us as the possibilities of our own faith. In fact, several commentators point to this. They show us the amazing possibility of faith, not just for them, but for us. What kind of like deeds of holiness and love an accomplishment of the gospel in our uh, generation are we called to. A race of endurance, of holiness and purity and love that in some way illustrates and lives out the faith of those people in chapter 11, who many of whom lost their lives. He's not just saying this for effect. He's saying we are pushed forward, we are drawn into a similar faith. But he calls us even higher, as we'll see, because he points us to the Lord Jesus. Now, if he's the author of faith or founder or champion, as we'll see, of faith, he's that for them as well. God, through the Lord Jesus, has always been the author of faith in Old and New Testament. But we have even a higher Privilege and responsibility because this one perfect man has accomplished faith like none other ever has. So we're surrounded by these witnesses, but there's the witness, the Lord Jesus Christ set before us and we fix our eyes on him. But let's just look at two basic uh, commands uh, or there are two sections of commands. One is the laying aside of every encumbrance and running with endurance the race. That, that little uh, connection of those two things, laying aside and running and then looking to Jesus. Laying aside and running the race and then looking to Jesus. Now, laying aside, he says, every weight and sin which clings so closely. We are easy marks for sin. Sin so easily attaches to us. We're like Velcro. We're like a sticky substance. Sin easily. It's, it's not as though we can... It's pretty easy for us to just shed our clothes when we want to. But if you've been in ski boots or another boot kind of boot and your foot is wet and you can't even begin to get it off and somebody else has to get it off or you've, you've been soaked and you're trying to peel your clothes off or you've had some kind of... Uh, substance spilled inside your clothes and you're like pulling skin off to get your clothes off. That's the way sin is. It's very difficult. It so easily entangles us. The idea is that we're tripped up after two or three steps. 
So to run this race, we have to... And and there's the analogy, the pentathlon, the five events of the Olympics. And the very first one is the endurance race. And it's the only one that lasts for an extended period of time. And the shedding of all clothes to run this race so there's no impediment. So initially there's this call to lay aside every weight, anything, all sin which clings so closely to us. And this means, of course, all of the world's influence. It means relationships that would hinder us from running running this race. Associations that would hinder us. The use of media in any way that is hindering us from running the race. The excessive use of even good things that hinders us from running the race. All of the idols of our heart, our lusts and desires. What's called in chapter 3 verse 13, the deceitful attractiveness of sin. To lay it aside. And this means even things like fear and discouragement that so hinder us from running. How often it guilt and fear and discouragement and doubt of what, uh, in, in terms of what we've done wrong and how it hinders us from hurling ourselves into the race of holiness, of obeying Him. And so we have to lay aside these things by His grace in order to run this race. Self-importance, self-righteousness, laying all things aside. And as runners and many athletes have shown, sometimes this means things that are good in and of themselves. We're talking about a real race to really make advance and to do well in this race. And you talk to somebody who's been a gymnast since, and and she's competing in the Olympics at 14 or 15 years old. Ask her what her day is like. Ask her what her weekends are like. Ask a swimmer uh, of that age, what time do you get up in the morning? When do you start your training? And you know they begin before dark and they train two hours before they ever even go to school. And it just makes me shudder to think about that. Just to get up for school is so hard. And they're up two hours earlier or three hours earlier in order to train. This is the kind of picture that is laid before us. Laying aside anything and everything that would encumber us from running with endurance. And the idea of running with endurance, uh, verse 3 talks about Christ who endured such hostility. And our struggle against sin, the idea of endurance. When you run, I had a professor in seminary, Dr. McClellan, and this is a little bit earthy, uh, and I usually don't shy away from that, so here we go. Um, But he talked about, because he ran uh, marathons, and he would talk to us a little bit about this, and he said, you know... uh, From about 18 miles and onward, many times you bleed from places you're not supposed to bleed from. And, of course, I was just thinking, and why would you do this to yourself? (laughs) This is a fun thing for you to do. But it's a picture, isn't it, of the struggle, the agony, the pain, the hardship, the exhaustion. The word is the word that we get agony from, agony. 
In fact, when Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight, he says, I have agonized the good agony. I've struggled the good struggle. It's got at its heart this pain and hardship and toil and exhaustion. This is the Apostle Paul. This was the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other Christian life but this one of colossal struggle. Even to the point of of exhaustion, it feels like, spiritually. Now, can you imagine me running along? It's about 18 miles and uh, going in the marathon. And I pull up along some guy and I say, I'm I'm just dying. I I can't. And then I turn to him and say, am I a runner? And he says, and I say, am I in the race? And he looks at you like, what are you talking about? But we do that so many times when we're struggling so hugely and it's so hard. And we ask the question, what? Am I a Christian? (laughs) It's like, well, yeah. (laughs) Duh. Are you struggling? Now, I know that struggling itself doesn't mean necessarily that you're a believer. But it certainly in itself struggle is in no way, has nothing to do with an indicator that you must not be a believer, and quite the opposite would be true. The only Christian life, the perfect Christian life, lived by Jesus himself, was one of immense struggle and pain. And he ran with endurance, and he ran in faith. And he is the one to whom we look as we run with endurance and lay aside everything that would stand in our way. You get the feel that this is serious, don't you? You get the feel that we're not joggers. You get the feel that we're not just trying to lose a couple of pounds. You get the feel that this is an all-consuming way of life and it determines everything we do and our approach to everything in our life because we're about this race, because we're about this Christ. That's what we're about. And the glorious thing is, is he deserves everything that we might spend for him. And he exudes from us the joy and the faith to do it. So, lay aside and run with endurance. And then he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Probably the best translation, though many uh, prints, is a word that this... This word founder is used to trans, uh, I'm sorry, prince is used to translate it in places. Leader, uh, author, but perhaps champion because in the Hellenistic world, this word was used so consistently of the hero founders of cities and even of Hercules himself who uh, had a colossal uh, conflict and overcame the enemy. Most commentators now feel like this is the imagery. And it's glorious to think of him as our champion in the faith. Now, it certainly means that he initiates faith in us. So he's the author of our faith and he perfects our faith. But the emphasis, even as glorious as that is, is that he's the champion of faith himself. 
He's the champion who demonstrates what faith means. He has given faith its ultimate expression in his life. He has shown as no other the unlimited possibilities of faith because he had unqualified obedience to the Father under the absolute worst of circumstances, and he continued to entrust himself to God. He continued to look to the promise of God that he laid before him, as it indicates, who for the joy set before him. And so in Christ, there's a preeminence of faith. In Christ, there is the priority, the first one who exercised perfect faith. And so there's the idea that he initiated uh, perfect faith. He is the champion of faith. The complete realization of faith is in him. And of course, there is then the idea as the champion of faith, he did it not just for himself, but for us, that he might now be our resource of faith. He quickens faith in us. He excites faith in us and evokes faith and stimulates faith as well as by His power creating faith in us. He's not only our example in the embodiment of faith, but He then by His actions for His people determines that they will walk in faith. So while we have such a great cloud of witnesses, we have the Lord Jesus who's accomplished it in such a glorious way. And He doesn't only initiate it, and He's not only the champion of it, but He perfects it. He sustains it, and He brings it to its final conclusion. He perfects faith in, in the way He expressed it, and then He brings us to it as well. And this joy that is set before Him, the joy of obeying His Father, the joy of initiating the kingdom, the joy of being at the right hand of God, the joy of pouring out His grace and His people, the joy of winning a people to Himself forever. There was even in the horror of the cross this joy set before Him. And so for us, there will be no endurance unless we are gripped with the joy set before us. The joy of having Christ. The joy of His perfected kingdom. And that joy outweighing every other consideration in our lives. So that our, we are looking to Jesus alone. The idea here of looking to Jesus has embedded in it looking away from everything else and looking to Him only. So that in a certain sense, every day, it is Christ that is my consideration for how I'm going to live. It is Christ that is my consideration as to how I'll, live, I'll love, how I'll sacrifice, how I'll give myself in obedience. I look to Him with the witnesses who, even looking to Christ, gave such examples of faith. And now I look to Christ Himself who's come in the flesh and accomplished faith. And He is what I fix my eyes upon. It's interesting in talking about some martyrs in the Maccabean period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We read, Here an aged priest and an aged woman and seven sons lie buried through the violence of a tyrant who wished to destroy the Hebrews. They vindicated our nation, keeping their eyes fixed on God and endured torments even to death. 
Same idea, keeping their eyes fixed upon God. And notice this phrase where it says that Jesus despised the shame. This means basically that he braved the shame. The shame meant nothing to him. It didn't affect how he lived or what he decided to do to give himself for us. It means that he went unafraid uh, to the shame. And several commentators speak to the nature of crucifixion. It was indeed a punishment so degrading that no Roman citizen might be subjected to it. Cicero's most damning charge against Gaius Verus, the notorious governor of Sicily, was that he had actually dared to crucify a man who claimed to be a Roman citizen and who had never previously even set eyes on an object so accursed as a cross and that the victim's protestations had failed to make Verus hesitate or delay before inflicting, quote, this most brutal and horrifying torture. He plumbed the depths of human shame. And for your sake and for the joy set before him, he despised it. It didn't matter how horrible, how much torture, how degrading it would be, the shame. No Roman citizen could even be tortured. And then F.F. Bruce says, to die by crucifixion was to plumb the lowest depths of disgrace. It was a punishment reserved for those who were deemed of all men most unfit to live, a punishment for sub-men. You weren't even considered a human being when you were put upon the cross. It was so degrading and horrific. Our Lord chose that. He so moved events that he would be crucified and cursed. From so degrading a death, Roman citizens were exempt by ancient statute. The dignity of the Roman name would be besmirched by being bought, brought into association with anything so vile as the cross. For slaves and criminals of low degree, it was regarded as a suitable means of execution and a grim deterrent to others. But this, this disgrace, Jesus regard, disregarded as something not worthy to be taken into account when it was a question of his obedience to the will of God. And so we keep our eyes upon him, not only because he despised the this, despised this shame and endured the cross. But he is seated at the right hand of God. We hold those two things together. And we realize there is no other pathway. No other pathway than my giving myself gladly and joyfully in expectation of God's blessing, whatever it will cost me. And the difficulty for you and for me many times is not persecution, but it's the pain of putting sin to death and deciding I will suffer getting rid of this sin in my life. I will hurt. I will let my desire go. I will turn away from it. And I will follow my Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he says in verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. One says, Make a rough estimate 
just how much he suffered. Alone, the wrath of God, the shame, things that we never will know. But he believed God and trusted God when there was no reason outwardly to think that God was his father, and yet he trusted him. And so I urge you to turn away from everything from lust and envy and jealousy and worldliness to fear and discouragement. What is it? By God's grace, the author of faith will enable you to trust him above everything else. To entrust your life to follow him and let everything else go. He will give you that faith. He's the author of it. He's the champion of it. He's done it himself and he imparts that grace to his people. He didn't do it just for himself. He did it so that we, in a way that in some way would surpass what happened in the Old Testament. I don't mean to outward, uh, necessarily outward events, but I'm saying that the reality of God's grace in our life should follow the pattern of these great men and women of the Old Testament and burst the bonds because Christ is our Lord. And so he calls us, and I close with this, in the very next chapter, let us go to him outside the camp, picturing Jesus as being sacrificed as an animal outside the camp, not worthy of fellowship, cast away as like a piece of garbage, a sub-man, as uh, the commentator said it. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Let us pray.